Hello and welcome to the Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast series. My name is Paul Miles and today I am pleased to be speaking with Professor Thomas Corcoran, the principal investigator of the PADI trial just published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Thomas is an anesthesiologist and critical care specialist. Uh, he's also adjunct professor here at Monash University. The PADI trial was funded by the Australian National Health Medical Research Council, our NHMRC. It was a large international triple-blind randomised trial enrolling over 8,000 patients to evaluate the safety of dexamethasone in surgery, or more specifically, to test the hypothesis, is dexamethasone in adult patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery non-inferior compared with placebo in relation to the incidence of surgical site infection. So Thomas, why did you do this trial? Um, I guess, Paul, there were a couple of things um, that really uh, drove this trial to happen. The first was um, I took a four-year hiatus from uh, anesthesia practice. Uh, I finished up in 2003 with a cardiac fellowship at Barts on the London Chest. And then I migrated to Australia to pursue uh, full-time intensive care medicine training, which I did for four years. Uh, and I then moved back to anesthesia, full-time anesthesia, uh, from intensive care medicine. And in that period of time, I noticed one major change that I'd noticed in anesthesia practice was that glucocorticoids were being given sort of very, very freely and far more freely than I had recalled than when I was uh, finishing my training. So that was the first thing that got me kind of thinking, well, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Uh, and having just come from the intensive care uh, setting where we were still using lots of glucocorticoids and septic shock um, to no avail, as it turned out at the time. Um, I was kind of very keenly aware of the, you know, potentially significant immunosuppressive effects that glucocorticoids can have. Uh, and again, particularly around a time of immune stimulation and derangement, as commonly happens during uh, surgical procedures and afterwards. So that was the principal reason I, I noticed the change. And then speaking to a variety of different sources uh, and some of my colleagues, and in particular one of our trainees in theatre, uh, we kind of went through the pros and cons. And I knew that dexamethasone at that time had been recommended for as an antiemetic um, through the International Consensus Guidelines uh, led by Tongan. So that was obviously one of the reasons partially driving its frequent use. It appeared to be effective, but I did have a little bit of concern that maybe we hadn't fully established its safety. And certainly when I said it to mention to some of my surgical colleagues, um, they would say, you're doing what? You're giving, uh, why? What's the rationale? Why are you giving a really potent, strong agent that can cause significant immunosuppression to my patient that I'm putting an artificial hip into? So based on that background, uh, I said, look, there probably is equipoise here to examine this in a bit more detail. And certainly I realized that a, a trial would be much more sellable if the surgical community were vested in it as well, which I think they have. They have embraced it and been keen to find out the results. Um, so you're right. The great concern has has been that it, it's it, we know it's immunosuppressive. It is anti-inflammatory, which may be a good or a bad thing in surgery. And the risk or the concerns around infection are certainly real. And one of the reasons why many um, clinicians were perhaps loath to use it more freely. The next question is really why did you choose to test the dose of eight milligrams? Mm. 
you know, why not either a smaller or larger dose? Yes, uh, that uh, that's a question that I guess we, we did ponder for a, for a period of time. Uh, there were a couple of reasons. I think when we started the trial, uh, when we started preparing the trial back in 2014, 2015, uh, at the time, it, it appeared that there wasn't a, a significant difference in terms of the major benefit from dexamethasone, which is the antiemetic benefit. There didn't seem to be a major benefit between the two doses. Maybe a very slight improvement in nausea and vomiting with an 8 milligram dose, but that hadn't been fully substantiated. Um, but it did appear that there were additional benefits such as improved acute analgesia and improved quality of recovery uh, that would be conferred with a higher dose. And we we also felt that if we're going to test this, we'll test this once. There'll be one shot at doing this. Um, and if we're going to if we're going to observe an effect, we will see it with the bigger dose. So in other words, uh, it seemed likely that there could be some extra beneficial effect of the higher dose, the 8 milligrams. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it was a stronger test of its safety. In other words, if it truly was harmful and mm. causing more infection, then you're more likely to see it with that dose. Yeah. So that, that makes sense to me. So why is it that so many clinicians believe that a single a dose of dexamethasone actually increases the risk of infection in the surgery setting? Um, I think the concerns are multiple. Uh, I think, first of all, there is the issue of um, hyperglycemia, which is associated with dexamethasone's use. Though some clinicians believe that the hyperglycemia associated with its use may contribute to increased risk of infection, and particularly surgical site infection. Secondly, um, there is the concern that because it seems to have a long duration of action, probably 18 to 24 hours, that it may have a sustained effect upon the immune response at the time of surgery, again, compromising potentially wound healing. Um, and there does seem to be a reasonable amount of work suggesting that the first 24 hours around the time of surgery is when most of the risks become established for, or most of the um, uh, conditions for surgical satin infection become established. And the third reason, um, I think, is simply because it was the unknown. For a lot of surgeons who may not necessarily be totally au fait with the pharmacological literature, I think they just felt that they had a concern that giving a big dose of a steroid to a patient that they are concerned about in the first instance might run into problems with surgical site infection. For that reason, they just said, no, we're not going to give it. And I think, um, you know, I, I do empathize with them because, you know, they do own their complications and surgical site infections are a big, uh, big complication. And if you get an infected prosthesis in an orthopedic patient, that's a really big deal, not just for the surgeon, but for the patient as well. Of course, well. Yeah. yes. So do you think there are plausible reasons that dexamethasone may in fact decrease the risk of infection? Um, I think there, there I don't think we know, to, to, to be frank. I think what we've, what this line of investigation has done is that it has kicked off a lot of ancillary investigations. So I've done some laboratory work examining dexamethasone's influence on cell populations. I know Chris Bain is doing quite a bit of work on genomic um, expression and activation in volunteers and in surgical patients who are exposed to dexamethasone. So there, I think we don't quite understand the immunology of uh, the, surgical the surgical period, the perioperative period. And as we are coming to a greater understanding around that, I think what we've realized is that not only does each individual patient differ 
in their response, there are patterns that you can identify in patients who will start to run into trouble. There is something that happens in some patients that they just get a slightly deranged immune response around the time of surgery. Now, it is plausible that that may contribute to increased surgical site infection risk, and dexamethasone in that patient may either cause changes in their response that will increase their risk or, indeed, decrease their risk. So we don't really quite understand as of yet, but it is potentially as plausible that it might decrease the risk of infection uh, as it might increase the risk. And in fact, I think Stefan Dielman's work in the DEX trial suggested a decreased risk of, of respiratory, uh, infective respiratory complications in that trial. So you don't really know until you test it. Uh, okay, so it seems that at least at some level, um, we know that it clearly is anti-inflammatory. Mm. And that inflammatory response after surgery is certainly immunosuppressive mm. of itself, albeit mm -hmm. it might be necessary for healing. But there would be some rationale, at least, that dexamethasone could mitigate that um, adverse inflammatory response Correct. and therefore protect yep. immune function. And yep. it's clearly, at the, at, up until the results of the PADI trial, that was pure hypothesis. Correct. So let's actually turn the results of the trial. You've spent um, probably 10 years of your life, and certainly the last yeah. five years, doing this very major international trial and rolling over 8,000 patients having all types of surgery. Uh, testing whether or not dexamethasone is non-inferior, in other words, um, um, as safe as not using mm. that steroid medication uh, in, in reference to surgical site infection. What did you find? So we identified that the primary outcome, surgical site infection risk at 30 days in patients undergoing non-urgent, non-cardiac surgery, who received dexamethasone uh, did not have an increased risk of infection in comparison to the placebo group. So just to clarify that, there is no evidence of any meaningful increase in infection risk, particularly Correct. surgical site infection, mm -hmm. when using dexamethasone at 8 milligrams yep. in many types of non-cardiac surgery. Correct. So that's the main finding, that the is bottom the main line. Finding. So that's really quite... Um, a compelling and important finding Correct. in our practice. So not only can we now de uh, feel much more comfortable about the safety of the medication, uh, particularly around infection risk, mm -hmm. uh, then opens up its use probably more widely to actually reduce nausea and vomiting to perhaps a greater um, degree in terms of uh, who gets it and how often they get it. Correct. Uh, in, in many types of surgery around the world. Yeah, I mean, I think importantly... Um as, as you'll know, we, we did stratify the trial according to diabetes status. We were particularly concerned um, that patients with diabetes may be at increased risk, not just due to their baseline risk being higher than, than patients without diabetes, but also because of the potentially exaggerated hyperglycemic response that you might get in those patients. Uh, and very reassuringly, um, we did not find that uh, there was any difference in the diabetes subgroup than there was in, in comparison to all the other patients in the trial that did, dexamethasone did not have any different effect in those patients. So once again, in diabetic patients where we know they're at greater risk of surgical mm -hmm. site infection more generally, mm -hmm. we also know that dexamethasone will generally increase blood glucose after surgery, so mm -hmm. high, more hyperglycemia. But despite that particularly high-risk group, mm -hmm. uh, the safety signal was comparable or... or Close to that of the main trial, so no, so no differential risk no. 
at all. So yep. therefore, dexamethasone can also be used in that diabetes population. Yep. Correct. That's really, really important. So you obviously um, love the trial. I love the trial. <laughs> what do you think were the main strengths of the study? What do you think give it that extra veracity that can reassure us uh, or clinicians around the world? Um, well, I think the, you know, the principal strength of the trial that it was is that it was large and adequately powered. Um, the problem we know is that with a lot of trials, they are often just that little bit too small, partly because they're difficult to do. So we have the luxury of the ANSCA Clinical Trials Network being able to run large trials and recruit quickly and heavily. I think that was the principal strength of size, but also I think in terms of design, there are a few key features. I think stratifying it according to diabetes status was was a good idea um, for, for, for many reasons, but um, not only because it allowed us to... to to mandate a, a, a minimum size of our diabetes cohort. Um, but I think the second component of it is the plan to analyze the data in the three different patient populations in which we did. Um, so let's examine. talk about that. So, and that, yeah. I mean, um, people who love statistics like <laughs> I do uh, are fascinated by these issues, but I think it's important for the everyday clinician that this non-inferiority trial design uh, analyzes uh, the patients according to how they were randomized mm. to the treatment group. But you can do different types of analyses looking actually, what about those that actually got steroid medication outside of the trial? Did that somehow interfere or affect the trial? Uh, and also, of course, whether or not the patient or the researcher or the clinicians followed the trial protocol more completely or, or went off beam here and there. And can you just t talk us through why it's important to analyse the data in these ways and how the findings may have differed? So, <clears throat> pardon me, um, there are three effective populations that we can look at in a trial of this nature. You can look at what we call the modified intention to treat population, where you examine patients according to the trial, according to the group in which they were randomised, irrespective of whether they followed protocol completion or had breaches, etc. So they're basically, irrespective of what happens, they are analyzed in the group to which they were randomized. The per-protocol population is a different population. They're individuals who are examined or who are analyzed according to the group to whether they completed their actual treatment and protocol as stated. So if you didn't complete the protocol according to, let's say, your dexamethasone group, if you didn't receive your dexamethasone, you could not be analyzed in that per-protocol group. It was analyzing only those patients who received the protocol, the group to which they were analyzed for the duration of the trial. And equally in that per-protocol uh, approach, the analysis, those that were in the placebo group, mm -hmm. uh, they may well have, and some did receive... Uh, out-of-trial yep. dexamethasone or other steroids. Um, they, therefore, didn't follow the protocol either, so they are taken out of that secondary Correct. analysis. Correct. And then the third group, which accounts for all of these real-world changes in pragmatic trials, is that the as-treated um, analysis, where patients are analysed according to actually what treatment they received. So as an example, a patient may be randomised to the placebo group, uh, but they may inadvertently get an extra dose of glucocorticoid either during the surgery or after the surgery, they would then be analysed according 
uh, or as in the dexamethasone group, and vice versa, a patient randomized to the dexamethasone group, for whatever reason, may not have received their study drug and therefore did not receive dexamethasone, they would then be analyzed in the uh, placebo group. And so the these, idea of so that is... Sorry, a, uh, so yeah. these, just to clarify, these are effectively treatment group crossovers. Correct. Um, and my recall is that that occurred in about 6%, yeah, just over 6% of patients in the trial. So uh, a small percentage, but still meaningful. So just um, tell us now, given that there's the more formal and rigorous analysis, which is the modified intention mm-hmm. to treat analysis, and then there's per protocol and, and as treated, did the results differ in any way across the three approaches? Well, this is an important point, Paul, because as you know, um, there are concerns about uh, amongst regulatory agencies ar- around non-inferiority trials because they are very frequently used to examine, to compare new drugs in comparison to older drugs. And certainly the European agency has stipulated that you need to demonstrate the same finding in both the modified intention to treat and the as or the, and the per protocol populations before it's considered a definitive trial. So, so a consistent Correct. finding. Correct. And, and how did you go in the PADI trial? So I'm, I'm very pleased to report. I can breathe a sigh of relief having, having looked at the results, which is what we did. We, we breathe a heavy sigh of relief because we were able to demonstrate exactly the same finding across the three patient populations. In fact, the confidence intervals uh, in the modified intention to treat and per protocol populations were exactly the same. There was a slight difference in the uh, as-treated group, but nonetheless, the finding was still of non-inferiority. So I think that we can say that this is a very definitive and very robust finding. Again, so very convincing because it was, um, as you say, consistent. That's really nice to know. Any other weaknesses in the study? Anything that you would like to do differently or you would have done differently after you've now spent these years of doing the trial? I think, you, you know, as you know yourself, you learn from many of these trials. There, you can try to account for most, most issues that might arise with the trial, um, but you cannot account for what actually happens in the real world. And our finding of the, the, the protocol breach rate, as you've indicated, is of over 6% is, is probably in the highest side for a large trial of this size, but nonetheless, it's a pragmatic real-world trial, so we, we can account for it. I was very surprised that most of these breaches were due to extra glucocorticoid administration, principally by surgical teams, believe it or not, and often for wound-related problems such as swelling, pain, and, or redness in the wound. So I, I think um, that was a real learning experience for me, and I think that what this trial has, has, has shown me is that you're not going to be able to legislate for all eventualities. You can only do so much and you have to build in some degree of capacity to deal with these sort of issues as they arise. And I think what that speaks to is developing a broad consensus, seeking advice from people who've done it before, uh, having a very sensible and, and clued in statistician who's done clinical trials before, who knows what the likely hurdles are going to be, such that if that problem arises, you can deal with it. So again, this is, I guess, trying to um, give more weight to uh, testing effectiveness Mm. uh, or comparative effectiveness research. In other words, real-world settings, everyday practice, but not necessarily a tightly controlled study that might happen at a single centre in other Mm. circumstances. So that does make it more generalisable. Now, uh, I also know in the PADI trial you had a range of secondary endpoints. I think you've clearly demonstrated 
uh, a reduction in acute pain in the first 24 hours after surgery and also better quality of recovery. So mm. they are interesting findings and probably consistent with the evidence that mm. had come previously. But an unexpected finding was that there seemed to be a small increase in the risk of chronic post-surgical pain, I think, out to six months correct. after surgery. That's now, correct. this is unexpected. How do you interpret this finding? Um, so it is an unexpected finding, and I'm still grappling with how to possibly explain it. It may, of course, as you know, be a spurious finding. It, it may just be down to chance, just one of those things that happens in, in a trial of this size. And we do know that the um, statistical analysis and the p-value around that estimate um, was not corrected for multiplicity. So we can only say tenuously that it's a positive finding, and until we interrogate the data in a bit more detail, we can't say it's definitive. So in other words, it could be effectively be a type 1 error or yeah. a false positive Correct. result. That yeah. may not, it could be spurious. It could be spurious, yeah, just, down, just purely down to chance. Yeah. Um, and a, the p-value around that is point, uh, 0.006, so it's, it's certainly not as, as, as uh, definitive as many of the other. Uh, p-values. Nonetheless, it is about a 1.5% difference in, in risk of chronic post-surgical pain. So it is substantial. And that's so if true, that would be clinically important. It's so about, therefore, yeah. it does require further study. Yeah, it's about an absolute, uh, an absolute risk increase or absolute risk increase of about 25%. Okay. Mm. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I have one last question. Um, I was interested to look back at our own practice here at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne um, and looked over 10,000 cases having non-cardiac surgery. And certainly for us, uh, around about 75% of our patients receive antiemetic prophylaxis during surgery. And of those, approximately um, two-thirds receive dexamethasone, most often a dose of four milligrams. So it seems to me from the results of the PADI trial that firstly, we can probably confidently increase that routine dose to eight milligrams and get the extra analgesic benefit uh, and or antiemetic benefit that mm. might come uh, at no extra um, uh, risk. Mm. Um, but even more importantly, perhaps dexamethasone should be used even more widely in non-cardiac surgery. What's your view? Um, I would tend to agree, Paul. Uh, we, from, from, we know from the PADI trial that almost 80% of patients received at least one antiemetic. Um, we know that post-operative nose vomiting is a big problem for patients, we don't see it as that big a problem because it's often uh, short-lived. But patients who have had it really do fear it. Uh, it can be cause crippling anxiety because they've had it before, and many of them will fear it more than pain. So an effective prophylactic agent that has additional benefits, obviously, um, and that is easily available and is cheap is clearly what we're looking for. And um, the concern around dexamethasone Hopefully, we've dispelled most of the concerns around using dexamethasone, and and certainly I would encourage its use in most patients in whom it's clinically indicated. The I guess there are a couple of potential caveats around that. Obviously, this chronic pain issue will need to be further delineated, um, and there is some work around potential sleep disturbance that Richard Halliwell will be pursuing with a sleep sub, sub study very soon. But I certainly think that we could probably encourage it to be given more freely. And in fact, the consensus guidelines published, I think, last year, the fourth consensus guidelines have uh, recommended a higher dose, the eight milligram dose. Uh, and they have also indicated that the use of multiple doses 
including post-operatively, may be encouraged. So I think okay. we are trending in that direction. All right. So really, uh, I think a, a, probably a green flag for the use of it far more widely. Correct. Uh, I think that's great news for patients undergoing all types of surgery. Um, you know, I think uh, yeah, my own work and certainly all the research I do has been focused around patient comfort mm. uh, and, and quality of recovery after surgery. And I think this is a really landmark study. So I want to congratulate you. Uh, and your team uh, on a great success. Thank Thank you. Thank you very much.